The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It is such a privilege to share this moment with you. Miss you. I'm happy to spend some time pondering God's Word with you. So our text for today is Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 to 11. Again, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. We've been studying through this incredible book, and we are uh, today looking at Jesus' second message to these churches in Asia Minor, the church in Smyrna. So again, that's Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Let's hear the words of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this chance to look at your word, to ponder it, to proclaim it, and Lord, to believe it. Lord, as we come before your word, we ask you for help. Lord, you, you know us to the very depths of who we are. You know our anxieties, our concerns, you know, the shadows in our hearts, our rebellion. You know our hunger for you, our need for you. Please visit us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please visit each person listening this morning Show us Jesus Christ and draw us to him by grace through faith for your glory. Uh, help us as we listen. Help me, Lord, as I teach. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come before this text this morning, I want to ask you this question. Is there anything in your life worth dying for? Is there anything in your life worth dying for? An honest answer to that question reveals the treasure of our hearts, doesn't it? It reveals what we love the most. There's some things, you know, I enjoy them. I'm not dying for them. Most things, really. But there are some things that are so precious, those things make life life. They might be dying for. So what in your life is worth dying for? Here's another question. Is there anyone in your life who has the right to tell you to be willing to die for him? Die for me, he might say. You might respond, hey, what gives you the right to ask me for the ultimate price? Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation this morning. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to say to his church. Be willing to die for me. Jesus says, 
In this passage, those who know me know I'm worth living for to the point that I'm also worth dying for. So we're in Revelation. Revelation is this strange, awesome book full of intensive symbolism from the Old Testament. But as hard as some of the details are to figure out, the basic idea is plain. This book is about who Jesus is as king and what it means to follow him as he reigns now and will soon return. This book is the revelation of Jesus. We see who he is. It's also revelation from Jesus. We hear from him about how to follow him, how to trust him, and he meets our need for what it means to live for him through hard times. So last week, we started Jesus' messages to these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And also, it's a message to all churches everywhere. And we realize each of these messages follows a seven-part pattern. And I want to remember those with you before we look at the message for this morning. Uh, we saw that each address starts with a declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus shows us himself, how wonderful he is, how grand he is. Second, each church hears about the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus will say to each church, I know. He, is, he knows them intimately. He knows their situation to the detail. He knows what they need. Third, most, most churches get encouragement from Jesus. Jesus is quick to point out to his people what he loves about them, what they're doing well. Fourth, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus. Jesus is also so perfectly honest. And he says, this is in, a, in the rebuke, he says, this is what I need you to change. All but two churches get rebukes. Fifth, all churches receive a calling from Jesus. Jesus says to his people, this is what I want you to do to follow me. Sixth, most, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. The consequence always fits with the rebuke. If you won't repent and turn like I'm asking you to do, there's a price to pay. This, will, this is what will happen if you won't repent. Finally, seventh, all churches receive a promise from Jesus. The reward for those who follow him faithfully, the reward for those who conquer. Jesus is always saying, I'm worth it. I'm infinitely worth it. So again, just to summarize, you get the declaration of who Jesus is, the knowledge of Jesus, encouragement from Jesus, a rebuke from Jesus, a calling from Jesus, a consequence from Jesus, a promise from Jesus for those who conquer. So this morning, I want to give you just a little bit of a background to this city of Smyrna so we can understand what that church was going through, and then we're going to walk through what Jesus has to say to this church and God willing, we'll hear what he has to say to us as well. So first of all, just background to Smyrna. Smyrna was a wealthy city devoted to emperor worship. It was known for its architecture, its economic strength, but especially it had the reputation for loving the emperor of Rome. Uh, historically, the city of Smyrna had a long, friendly political history with the Roman Empire, and it quickly embraced emperor worship as part of its polytheistic spirituality. Um, we're sure that Domitian was the Roman emperor of the time. He was a vile man. He was a tyrant. And he insisted on being called Lord and a God. 
And the city of Smyrna was happy to capitulate to that. I want to read to you from commentator Greg Beale. He tells us some of what this was like. Uh, listen to these words. Beale writes, The imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of the city and often even village life in Asia Minor so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Beale continues, citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions, and sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. In addition, Smyrna's history reveals its particular loyalty to Rome, especially the fact that it had built more than one temple in honor of Roman religion. So we're seeing Smyrna is wealthy, it's prominent, it's devoted to emperor worship. What does this mean? It means it was a serious difficulty to follow Jesus in the city of Smyrna. Think about it. To worship Jesus alone, you would need to refuse to participate in emperor worship. And if you did that, um, you would be labeled as undesirable, you would be seen as unpatriotic, anti-society, even treasonous. This would hinder your ability to have a job or build a business or participate in society. It might even lead to prison and to death. Can you imagine what that would be like today if you showed up at work and you had to somehow bow the knee to a politician as Lord and God, and if you wouldn't do it, if you said, no, Jesus is my Lord, I can't do this, if you wouldn't do it, you'd lose your job, or you'd lose your home, or you wouldn't be able to participate in society, you might even be sent to prison. Can you imagine what pressure there would be to compromise? You would have this idea that, well, if I just join in what everyone else is doing, I can have a more comfortable life. I can provide for my family's needs. But if I refuse this, there's a hard price I might have to pay. It leads us back to this question, doesn't it? Is there anything in your life worth dying for? So that's the scenario for this church in Smyrna to whom Jesus will now speak. And so we're going to turn our thoughts to what he says to them now. He speaks to them, and he knows they need to see one grand, main, awesome, ultimate thing that will meet their need in this situation. And what is it they need to see? They need to see him. They need to see him. So now we go to the declaration, Revelation 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let's ponder that phrase, the words of the first and the last. What does that mean? Well, like many things, maybe even most things in the book of Revelation, it refers to something from the Old Testament. If you follow this theme, you might end up in the book of Isaiah. It's there quite a bit. You might look to Isaiah 44. Verse 6, there through the prophet, this is what God says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? 
let him proclaim it. So we see what Jesus is, seeing, is saying about himself. Who is he? Jesus is saying, I am eternal God. I'm one with the Father. I have no beginning. I will have no end. I am the creator of all things. I am in control of history. Beside me, there is no God. All these polytheistic ideas, they cannot stand beside me. The emperor himself, he cannot stand beside me. Beside me, there is no God. There's no one greater than Jesus. And we need to see this. We need to see this. In tribulation, all our challenges, all our enemies, all the pressures can seem so great and we feel so small, but Jesus lifts our faces to look, lifts our eyes to look at him, and when we see him again for who he is, oh, he's magnificent. He's great. He's powerful. And the more we see of who he is, the smaller all these other things get. Look to me, Jesus says, I am God the first and the last. He also says, I am your king who holds you in my hand. Verse 8, he writes to the angel of the church in Smyrna. We've seen this nearly every week so far. It reminds us of what John wrote in Revelation 1.20. This is what Jesus said. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so what we've been saying is that these churches have a heavenly representation. They are known by the Lord Jesus. They are seen by the Lord Jesus. And this idea that he holds them in his hand. He's sovereign over us. We belong to him. He protects us. He provides for us. He's our king and we belong to him. We need to see that. The church in Smyrna needed to see that. He is God. And he holds his people in his hand as their king. Jesus continues. He says, the words of the first and the last. And then he says, the words of the first and the last who died. How can the first and the last, the eternal, how can God die? Well, we remember the miracle, the beauty, don't we, of the gospel the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself to such a radical extent that he became human. He became human. He was born as a baby. He grew through childhood. He became a man. He lived the perfect life of love for his father, love for his neighbor, as a faithful witness to the truth he came for us, and that life of faithfulness led him to the tribulation of the cross itself. And we know, we've heard, Jesus went to the cross willingly in order to pay the price we deserve to pay for our sins. He went there as our substitute to earn our forgiveness, to redeem us from sin, to give us a new identity as beloved children of God, to give us a new life of those who can live for God's glory in fellowship with the Lord and one another forever. John loves this theme. It's foundational to Revelation. Look at Revelation 1, 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to this church? Number one, I'm God. Number two, I'm king, I hold you in my hand. Number three, I died for you because I love you. I died for you because I love you. I've forgiven you. I've made you mine. I've given you a new identity, a new life to know me, to be with me, to live for me. I died for you. I love you. Also, he didn't just die. He came to life. Jesus faced the monster of sin and death and defeated it on the cross. And the vindication of that victory is his literal, physical resurrection. He was the faithful witness who went through tribulation and due to his faithfulness rose from the dead. He's king now and he reigns. One day he will return to renew the world and he will give his people resurrection into new bodies as glorious as his. It adds up to this. I rose, you will rise. Your future is beautiful. Your future is beautiful because you have me, Jesus says to the churches. And it all adds up to this, right? Jesus is God, the first and the last. He, he holds them in his hand. He died for them because he loves them. He rose for them and will give, him, give them his new creation. It all adds up to this. He's saying, you can trust me. You can trust me in this time of tribulation. Do you see who Jesus is? Jesus is saying to the Smyrnans, do you see who I am? He's saying to us, do we see who he is? Do we see what he's done? Do we see his value? You know, if Jesus is just a good teacher, these words are garbage, aren't they? He's not worth dying for. He's not really worth living for. But if this is who Jesus is, the divine king, who died for our sins and rose from the dead and will one day return to judge the earth and renew the world and give his people resurrection. If that's who he is, if that's what he's done, then what is he worth? He's worth everything. He's worth everything. How have you responded to Jesus? How are you responding to him day by day? How are you responding to him now? Does it fit with who he is and what he's worth? Can you see him? Can you see him? Well, Jesus says, this is who I am to the church in Smyrna. The second thing he says is, I know. Verse 9, I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty. I think in this case, this is especially sweet. Um, I know in my life when I'm having a hard time, when somebody just knows and cares and shows compassion, is in it with me, that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. And for this church, um, demeaned, poor, no influence, life is hard for these people. For them to hear the Lord Jesus, God himself, say, I know. And Jesus does know, doesn't he? He knows tribulation. <laughs> he knows what it means to be poor. He knows what it means to be despised. He knows what it means to be chained, even to be murdered. He knows He's been there, 
and he sees it, and he tells this church, I know. He doesn't just say, hey, buckle up. He says, I know, I get it. So sweet, so precious. Jesus sees the pain we go through with and for him. He knows. Number three, Jesus gives this church encouragement. He gives them encouragement. So we'll look now to verse nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You're rich. You're infinitely wealthy. This is ironic. Wait, the, the Samaritans were poor. They're demeaned. They're going to prison. They're, they're despised. They're the trash of their society. Jesus says, I see you, and I see infinite wealth. I see you, and I see riches. How, how can this be? What does it mean to be rich? I was thinking about that, and the answer I scribbled down was, to be rich means to have lavish resources for love and happiness that endures. Does that kind of get at it for you? Lavish resources. So it's not just, it's not just a little bit. And a, it's got to endure. It keeps going. That's what we like about riches. There's so much there, I'm never going to get to the end of it. Lavish resources for love and happiness that endures. So the question then is, what would make you truly rich? What would, what would it be that if you had it, you'd be ultimately rich? And Jesus is saying here, he's encouraging them with this, you're infinitely rich because you have me. You're rich because you have me. You're rich because you are mine. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I know the slander from the synagogue of Satan. That's intense. Uh, what is Jesus talking about? Well, just a little bit of background. Uh, there were religious Jews in these cities, and we know from reading the New Testament, historically, in the first century, religious Jews were quite antagonistic to Christians. Um, in this context, religious Jews had been granted exception from the Roman Empire. They didn't have to participate in emperor worship in the same way others did. But Christians did not have that exemption at this time. So scholars say religious Jews would slander the Christians in Smyrna to the local authorities. They would tell them how the Christians would not participate in emperor worship. And this would lead to severe economic and political consequences, sometimes even death. So we see a little bit of why Jesus calls this group a synagogue of Satan. Number one, these are religious Jews that have explicitly denied and rejected Jesus as their king. They've turned away from the, God, from the king God promised and sent to them. They denied Christ. They didn't want him. And so in that sense, in context, they're following Satan. Moreover, Satan is the accuser. That's what he does. And so, as a synagogue of Satan, they are accusing Christians. And Jesus says of them, they might be Jewish, but they aren't Jews. Did you see that here? I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. What is Jesus talking about? What does he mean? 
Well, I'm sure this issue has almost nothing to do with ethnicity, okay? This is not about race. To be a Jew in this context is to be someone who belongs to God. That's often how the New Testament used this word. To be a Jew is to, the heart of that is to love God, to know know his grace, to trust what he's done to save us. In fact, scripturally, everyone, no matter their ethnicity, is, is welcome to come, to turn, to repent, to trust God, and belong to his people. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2? Remember Paul, he was a Jew of Jews, a Jew of Jews. He grew up in the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, Um, but he left that. He left that for Christ, and this is what Paul says in Romans 2, 28 to 29. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart By the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? To belong to God as his people is not ultimately about ethnicity or even external religion. It's about a changed heart the Holy Spirit brings as someone trusts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who trust Jesus and follow him as king, those are God's people. So in this manner of speaking... It's the Gentile Christians in Smyrna who are true Jews, not the religious Jews slandering them to the authorities. Remember Romans 1, 5, to whom who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Do you see those are promises to Israel in Deuteronomy that are now fulfilled in Gentile Christians in Smyrna, in Revelation? To sum all this up, this is what Jesus is saying. You're my people. That's what he's saying to the Smyrnans. You're rich because you're mine. You have me. You have everything I've done for you. You have the identity I've given you. You have the future I'm going to bring you. You're rich. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 21. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Christian, this is true for you. All things are yours. Whether the world, the new earth is yours, or life, eternal life is yours, or death. You own death to the sense that it can't beat you, it can't keep you, or the present. The present is yours. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus. You have his word. Or the future. You have what Jesus is bringing. Paul says, all are yours, and you're Christ's, and Christ is God's. What an encouragement for the Smyrnans. You're rich because you're mine, and you have me. So we've seen the declaration of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, the encouragement from Jesus. Well, and now we notice uh, there's no rebuke for this church from Jesus. And so we move straight to the calling. This is Jesus' calling. We see this in verse 10. The first three words are the, get at the heart of it. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Because you are mine, Jesus says, do not be afraid. 
They need to hear these words because look what comes next. Do not be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. (laughs) That's tough, isn't it? I mean, if I got word that I was about to suffer, let me tell you the first response that would come out of me. I would be afraid. (laughs) Jesus says, you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Look at what's coming. It's demonically inspired tribulation. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. We remember here the spiritual warfare we're a part of. That there's spiritual forces that hit God's people and wants to mess with them, to hurt them, to harm them. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, Jesus says. And this may be even possible martyrdom. This will occur because they're refusing to join in the idol and emperor worship. This is going to come because they insist on worshiping Jesus alone. And you might think, wow, that sounds extreme. But friends, do you realize tribulation like this, it's, it's not actually uncommon. Um, did you know more Christians were killed for being Christians in the last hundred years than the rest of church history combined? It's not actually globally uncommon for people to be killed for being Christians. Um, I read recently 1,200 Nigerians just this spring and summer have been killed for being Christians. 1,200. And so we see that tribulation like this is normal. Yeah, it comes in pockets and waves, even as we study these seven churches, um, only some are, pace, are facing persecution to this extremity. Others have it a little easier. There are pockets in the world, different places where there's more tribulation or less tribulation. There's waves throughout history where there's more or less tribulation. But tribulation itself, the pressure Christians face from a broken world that rejects Jesus as king, that's normal. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this to Christians in the church in Rome, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient. In what? Tribulation. In some way, it will always be here. And there are many reasons to believe tribulation might increase in our country for us. There's reasons to believe it might get harder and harder to live for Jesus as Lord. There's reasons to believe there might be more of a cost to explicitly follow and proclaim Jesus. And what is Jesus, what is his calling to us? Don't be afraid. Face it. Walk into it with courage. Jesus, how? How? How do I do that? I think he gives us three reasons here, and they all come from the reality of that encouragement. Jesus says, you're mine. And then the first thing is, you're mine, and I'm in control of your tribulation to use it for your good. We see that in verse 10. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Listen, it's not the devil who tests Christians in this way, because this word is about someone using something for your good, for your good. Do you see how Jesus is sovereign even over what the devil wants to do? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to use this situation for your good. It will refine your character and your love for me, Jesus says. 
It's the stage for how you can glorify me in the world and show my value. And Jesus says, I will lavishly reward you. Read the first chapter of 1 Peter later today and see. See how God uses hard times to test and refine his people ultimately in order to reward and bless them. So don't be afraid, Jesus says, I'm in control. I use this for your good. Second, Jesus is saying, you're mine and the tribulation is limited. It's limited. Did you see how uh, it's for 10 days? Now, if we took that kind of woodenly or literally, you'd think, oh, okay, a week and a half in jail. We can handle that, right? It's just 10 days. I'll be back soon. It's like a, you know, just for a little bit. Well, I'm not sure that's the right way to read this. Uh, like most things, again, in Revelation, I think it's a, an allusion to the Old Testament, and it's probably a reference to the book of Daniel. So if you remember, in the beginning of that book, you've got uh, Daniel and his friends, these young men who are exiles from Israel, trying to live in this hostile, hostile uh, culture of Babylon. And Daniel gets uh, convicted in his heart that he cannot eat of the king's table in some way. He, he just finds it this line he can't cross in order to be faithful to God. And he says, I won't do it, I can't do it. And that actually brings uh, the threat of death for this choice. Look at what Daniel says to um, his authorities, Daniel 1, verse 12. What does he say? Test your servants. For how long? Ten days. Ten days. What does this show us? There's this line we can't cross when we want to follow our God faithfully. It's going to bring a sense of tribulation. There's a test. But as we see in Daniel, the, the tribulation is limited and God vindicates his people. He vindicates his people. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is the tribulation, even if it kills you, is limited. I'm in control of how long it is. It won't go on forever. And at the end of it, I'll vindicate you. He's saying you'll make it. You'll make it. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. I'm in charge of this for your good, and don't be afraid because you're going to make it. It'll be worth it. So we've seen Jesus calling. Uh, as we work through these letters, now we'd be getting to the consequence, but there was no rebuke for this church. There's no consequence for this church, which, which, which means we move straight into the promise. And I think this is the third reason not to be afraid. It gets to Jesus' promise. So we start uh, in the middle of verse 10. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is this third reason not to be afraid. It's receiving the crown of life. We see something profound here, don't we? We see something about the heart of a true Christian. The heart of every true Christian says, Jesus is worth everything. He's worth living for, and he's worth dying for. How do you get the crown of life? Did you see it? Be what? Faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. The Christian heart says, I want to live for Jesus explicitly. 
I want to live for him devotedly, only. No other gods before me. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my king. I don't want to deny him in how I live or in what I proclaim. And when somebody forces me to that line and says, deny him or die, I hope, I desire, I want to be the kind of person who says, then kill me because I won't deny my Lord. And Jesus promises, if you're faithful unto death, hey, maybe our lives will have tons of tribulation. Maybe our lives will just have a little bit of tribulation. But if you're faithful, devoted to Christ, you know that you'll receive the crown of life for Jesus, from Jesus himself. I think this crown shows us that life is like a race. The New Testament has this a lot, uh, where you're running. And your competitors in this race, they're not other people. They're influences that want you to deny Christ or compromise your devotion to him and how you live and what you want to proclaim. And so to finish this race is just to make it until death faithful to Jesus. Not perfectly, but genuinely. And the only way to win this race is to finish faithful. And the only way to lose this race is not to finish faithful. But if you finish faithful, when you finish, you get the crown. You overcome. You're a conqueror. You're victorious. Can you imagine seeing the exalted Jesus and him somehow, I don't know how this works, but him somehow crowning you as a victor because you were faithful? Ugh. Overwhelming. This is what James says in James 1.12. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. They love him. And this is the only race that really matters, isn't it? Did you notice in this text there are two deaths? There's two deaths. Now, the first one, we cannot escape. Uh, you know, we're learning even if you get COVID, you probably won't die from it. But maybe we're forgetting even if you never get COVID, you're still going to die. The American dream dies. Fun career, family, retirement, you still die. Here's the problem that most people haven't reckoned with, you might die again after that. You might die again after that. The first death we cannot escape, but it's the second one we need to avoid. We want to avoid. We want to get out of What is this second death? Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15 makes it real clear. Revelation 20, 14 to 15 this is the second death. What is it? The lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is sobering. So sobering. Reminds us we will all stand before Jesus and answer for how we've lived. It reminds us we each deserve 
God's wrath for our sinful rebellion. I want to tell you, I deserve in myself hell. But it reminds us Jesus took the hell his people deserve on the cross so that they could have his heaven. And if you repent of your sins and trust in him to save you, rely on him as your king, your name is in the book. Your name is in the book, the book of God's people. And if your name is in the book, you will finish faithful and receive the crown. You will not be harmed by the second death. There's only one death, and that death gets you eternal life. Escape the second death and enjoy eternal life in heaven with Jesus forever. Eternal riches. Eternal happiness. You see that promise? Do you see what Jesus wants to give his people? The crown of life. And that motivation is what helps us face tribulation with no fear. So we ask again, what is worth dying for? What is worth living for? If you believe this text, you know the, funda- the fundamental answer is this. Jesus is worth it. Jesus. Jesus. Did you see who he is? Did you see what he's done? Do you see what he calls you to? Do you see what he promises So what are we going to do with this text today? If you're listening in this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, your heart's bothered by that, pricked by that, I just want to invite you, trust in Jesus even now. Realize that though he is God and king, overwhelming, he's also the one who came to die for sins. And his invitation to you is, if you'll call upon him, he'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll embrace you. He'll receive you. Repent of your rebellion. Trust Christ. Lean on him as your Savior. Follow him as your Lord. If you have any questions about that, we would love for you to write in, call in. Love to talk to you about those things. If you are a Christian... I just want to encourage you to see again how great Jesus is. See again how great he is. He's God in love. He died for us. He rose for us. Look at these promises to us. And be ready. Know that devotion to Jesus will in some way, at some point, have a cost. There will be tribulation. But let's see it just as a stage to show the value of Jesus. We know that many will deny Jesus for a more comfortable life now. We should be warned about that. That gets you two deaths. But as people who see him for he is, for who he is, we'll take an early first death if necessary, knowing we get to skip out on the second death and enjoy eternal life forever. Because even in that first death, nothing can stop our living We are eternally rich because we have Christ. I hope you believe that today, and I hope it strengthens you today. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, help us to see the magnificence and the grandeur 
of who you are. Let us to taste and know that you're worth it. You're worth it, whatever it is. And give us wisdom, Lord, and the courage to faithfully trust you and follow you through whatever kind of tribulation comes, knowing you hold us in your hands, you use it for our good, it's limited, we'll be vindicated out of it, um, and you're gonna give us the crown of life. Help us to believe you, to follow you, to be faithful to you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.